This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Cities around the country are grappling with the realities of climate change. As the nation pushes toward more environmentally conscious development, new projects are turning abandoned infrastructure like railroad tracks and suspended highways into designated green spaces. Perhaps one of the most well-known examples is the High Line in New York. In 2006, city officials broke ground on abandoned elevated railroad tracks that had been unused for decades. And today, it is almost one and a half miles of green space in the middle of Manhattan, and it's incredibly popular. What I love most about the High Line is this overgrown feeling of all of this greenery around these preserved tracks. It is so stunning, and it seriously feels like an oasis in the middle of the city. My number one tip is you definitely need to wear comfortable shoes. My number two tip is to get here early. I cannot stress it enough. It gets so crowded later in the day, especially on a weekend. So get here early if you want to enjoy sort of that peaceful, quiet, that makes this space so special. That was YouTuber and Highline fan Jennifer O'Brien. Since its opening, similar projects have popped up all over the country, but a study this year from the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability shows that as cities invest in these new green enclaves, the cost of living near them goes up. The rising costs push out low-income renters often into areas with less green space. It's being called green gentrification. A 2019 study found that neighborhoods located within a half mile of a new Greenway Park increased the odds it would gentrify by more than 200 percent. This was especially apparent in neighborhoods close to Chicago's 606 Trail, Houston's Buffalo Bayou Park, and New York's High Line. Is it possible to go green without causing gentrification? And what can cities do to make access to green space more equitable? We'll answer those questions and get into so much more after the break. I'm Sarah McCammon, and for Jen White, you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our guests. Joining us from Chicago, Illinois, is Winifred Curran. She's an urban geographer and professor of geography and sustainable urban development at DePaul University. She's also the author of Just Green Enough, Urban Development and Environmental Gentrification. Winifred, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Also joining us from Los Angeles, California, is Patrick Sisson. He's a writer covering urbanism, cities, transportation, and architecture. Patrick, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me as well. Winifred, we heard in the intro some examples of development spaces that have caused what's known as green gentrification. So first of all, can you just break down that phrase for us? What does it mean? Yeah, so it's basically uh, kind of the next frontier of gentrification, wherein any kind of investment in a neighborhood, a, a previously disinvested neighborhood, sparks um, speculative investment that leads to increased prices in, in housing and in commercial space and pretty much everything. Um, and that we've sort of evolved because our awareness of environmental issues has changed and has become more important. Our interest in seeing green space and um, in understanding things to that add to kind of the sustainability of the city have become much more desirable and attractive. And so where we have seen these kinds of interventions, we've seen the displacement that comes along with, display, with um, gentrification. Um, so green gentrification is just sort of like the newest form of gentrification, basically, wherein something that we celebrate sustainability um, is a tool to accomplish the displacement of working class people. Now, are we primarily talking about things like parks or, or what other kinds of developments would you define as causing green gentrification? It can be a lot of things. Parks and, you know, like the High Line, as you mentioned, it can be bike lanes, which are seen as, which again, are kind of celebrated as part of making the city more sustainable, but are also seen as being targeted for a very particular population, um, namely white gentrifiers. Um, it can even be tree plantings. Something as small as tree plantings have been shown to um, to increase property values in um, in houses that have, you know, just even a single tree in front of a, of a house can make that house more valuable. So it really is uh, filters throughout the, the property market. This kind of development has sometimes been called the high line effect after the refurbished railroad park we mentioned in New York City, but it's also happening on a smaller scale in other places. Patrick, where else in the country is green gentrification visible? You can probably say, honestly, most places where you're seeing a lot of park development, most places where you're seeing a lot of this kind of green infrastructure development, like Winifred said, um, I mean, it, it really boils down to the fact that so many cities in the country, there's a shortage of these amenities. You know, for a long time, due to things like redlining, disinvestment, we've seen neighborhoods that don't have enough parks, that don't have uh, a lot of transportation options, that don't have enough trees. And when you have a shortage of things, when you add something to the mix, that becomes valuable. And... Um, you know, it, it's good that you see real estate developers starting to or continuing to really value these things and make these part of their pitch. You know, we have a new development with um, great rooftop uh, green space or a new park nearby. But because of those shortages, um, inevitably those things become more in demand, creating these price imbalances that can cause uh, rising housing costs and potentially displacement. In September, New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced that the city would allocate $35 million to converting abandoned railroad tracks in Queens into a five-acre park called Queensway. 
Here's what he said. We've learned during COVID-19 how important it is uh, to have good quality open space. And it can't be just in one part of the city. We all celebrate the use of Central Park. Well, this park is going to be the center of the lives of this area and this community so they can enjoy the open space that we have here. Queensways improves quality of life, improves the air quality, and it promotes, promotes both physical and mental well-being. And Mayor Adams cited the High Line as one of the inspirations behind that project in Queens. Winifred, we're talking about some of the downstream effects of greening cities, of course. But first, you know, how effective are these types of measures at fighting the impacts of climate change, which is sometimes cited as the motivation? That's a great point, um, that often they're not as green as they seem to be. You know, many of these places look fantastic, right? The High Line is beautifully designed. No one's quibbling with that. Um, The question is, what is the environmental benefit, right? And how are we measuring the environmental benefit? And often when it comes to these kinds of projects, we're actually not measuring the environmental benefit. You know, it's been very difficult to to quantify what the improvements are um, and what the, you know, and whether they address the environmental problems in that place. Um, so I think a lot more work needs to be done on that because often these, um, these kinds of rails to trails projects can be quite expensive, first of all, um, so that which can make them hard to maintain in the long run. Um, so, and that thusly that is not very sustainable. Um, and also some of the things that look the nicest are not necessarily the native plants, um, you know, that you may bring in, you, you know, you want to have a different kind of color scheme and things that are flowering, you know, most of the year. Um, that's going to require bringing in um, plant species that are not necessarily native to the area. And so it's definitely questionable how much environmental benefit in terms of, you know, solving real problems uh, these spaces have. Obviously, green space in general is a good thing, but just the fact of green space is often not enough, right? You really need to look at targeting the solution to the problem. That was Patrick Sisson. He's a writer covering urbanism, cities, transportation, and architecture. Patrick, thanks for your time. Thank you. Now let's add two new voices to the conversation. Asima Jansveld is the Interim Chief Program and Engagement Officer for Friends of the High Line and Managing Director of the High Line Network. She joins us from New York City. Also with us is Isabel Engolovsky. She's the Director of the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability. Thank you both for joining us. Winifred, you know, it, it might have been given a name recently, but or in the last several years at least, but green gentrification isn't a new phenomenon. You know, historically, how has this type of development affected communities? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, that if you think of it, maybe even Central Park in New York is kind of the first example of green gentrification, wherein once the uh, plans for the park were made, people scooped up real estate a- along the boundaries of the future park, knowing that housing prices would go through the roof, and and you know they made tremendous profit. So it has always been the case that greening um, and nice, you know, kind of manicured, beautiful spaces have increased property values, and that that has tended to happen most in neighborhoods that are were already well-resourced. Um, and so what's a little bit different here is that the greening is kind of coming often to parts of the city that had been historically disinvested. So, for example, um, areas that had been heavily industrialized. Um, and so this, this is a way of kind of reclaiming that space for something that is considered to be more valuable than the industrial history than that was there before. 
Isabel, you led a study earlier this year about the effects of urban greening in both the United States and Europe. What did you find? We found that in the majority of cities in our sample, and mostly American cities here, there was a citywide trend of green gentrification. That is that if you take all types of green space that uh, have been built since the early 1990s, so parks, community gardens, greenways, recreational areas, and more, they have had an effect that is significant on inducing or accelerating gentrification. And I mean, how big of a problem is this? Is there a way to quantify it? I mean, how often as cities become greener, do they also become less affordable for the people already living there? I think you have two ways of thinking about it. You have kind of the um, identification of a local effect. That is, you take a very um, emblematic, a very flagship project like the Beltline in Atlanta or the restored shoreline in East Boston, for example, and you can really see locally the increase in gentrification indicators, meaning uh, an increase in the proportion of college-educated residents, uh, in high-income residents, in um, in, race, in um, wider residents. And you can really see also how property prices are going up at the same time. But what we really have managed to show in this study is that actually it is also a citywide phenomenon, meaning that is not only because of a certain project that has attracted the attention of developers or tourists that we can see gentrification effects. It's because of a broader branding of a city as a green city or a broader kind of sustainability um, identity being built around that city image. Asima, your work at the Highline Network helps support sustainable development projects in different cities as well. What is your response to this idea that these projects are a form of gentrification? Yeah, so just quickly, I do work at Friends of the Highline, which is a nonprofit supporting the operations and maintenance of the Highline itself, and we have a program called the Highline Network. And through that work, we are con- we are connecting with um, about 37 other projects across North America that are also reusing infrastructure as open space and public spaces in their community. And it, it was really born of the idea that, you know, it, the Highline has this dubious honor of the high, being called the Highline effect, maybe being one of the first to really come into the public um, mind of where there's been an increase in value in a neighborhood after green space has appeared. And us really looking at these projects to say, we can do better, that there is a way to really embed equity at any stage of a project in park development to ensure that we're mitigating as much as po- possible the um, the displacement impacts that may occur from creating quality green space. And so what we are seeing is that there is a trend for park organizations to start thinking way more holistically about the role that they play in the development and of their cities, and that there is steps you can take. There is never going to be a magic bullet to solving gentrification. And we do also come from the point of view that every single community deserves quality green space so that you shouldn't be keeping it away from a community because you're worried about issues of displacement. And and I heard Winifred and Pat and um, Patrick mentioned this before. I think it essentially comes down to who's holding the power of the decision-making about the change that is occurring in this neighborhood and who benefits from that change. And so when we talk about gentrification, I do believe that there are neighborhoods that really need and could benefit from increased investment and economic development, but it's about who's benefiting from that development and is that leading to displacement or is it actually empowering and elevating the residents who are in businesses that are there already? 
You know, we got a question from a listener on Twitter who says, if this is done in all neighborhoods, how is this an issue? Creating more green space is good for everyone. Not everything that makes a place more livable is gentrification. I I wonder if you could address that, Winifred. Uh, I think that sort of gets to the question of, is this happening broadly enough? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's, that, no, like, so in examples like this are happening all over, but it's not like they're happening all over one city at the same time so that every project is equal. It does tend to kind of start with the flagship project that gets a lot of attention, increases property values, and then that makes people in other neighborhoods in the same city very wary of similar projects because they've seen the displacement effects. Ideally, we would have green, you know, that really gentrification, if every neighborhood across the country were equally resourced, then gentrification wouldn't exist, (laughs) right? It's because of this uneven, this pattern of uneven development across cities and across the country that makes those places that are getting the investment so attractive. Um, So if we could do this sort of on a huge scale all at once so that every neighborhood was getting um, access to, you know, a reasonable supply of green space and all the other resources that they need, that would be great. That's ideal. But that's not what's happening. What we're doing is is sort of cherry picking certain projects and certain neighborhoods over others in a way that is kind of replicating the same landscape of inequality we've, you know, had for hundreds of years. Isabel, based on your research... Have you seen some solutions to this? I mean, we've talked about uh, incorporating the community, getting local voices involved in the planning and the decision making. Um, What are some other strategies for, uh, on the one hand, developing green spaces, but without some of these side effects? What we've seen in uh, in our research through uh, Europe and the United States is that you need a combination of anti-displacement and inclusive greening policies, meaning that it cannot just be about making the whole process of design of green space more um, community-driven or community-centered. That was the case in uh, Copenhagen with the creation of the Super Killen Park in in Norebro, and that doesn't mean that there hasn't been gentrification on the very contrary because of the appropriation of many symbols, many cultural symbols that uh, immigrants in that case had decided to um, to add to the green space, that those were also contributing to a kind of a commodification or an appropriation of these cultural signs of belongings by, by gentrification, by, by gentrifiers. So that's one aspect. What we've seen in the cities that have least gentrified is that you really have had very strong anti-displacement policies and plans even before the planning of that green space. So take, for example, the case of the 11th Street Bridge Park project in, in Washington, that's one of the projects that gives us a little bit more hope because before the bridge, this green bridge is being built, there has been an anti-displacement um, plan, a community development plan being uh, put in place by a series of nonprofits together with residents around green jobs, around affordable housing, around the community land trust to really prevent this displacement. Will it be enough? I don't know, but at least there is a very strong centering of of equity. Then in Europe, you have a history and a legacy of social and public housing being very much at the center of our welfare state. And so in cases like Nantes in France, um, among other cities, for every 100 units being built, 
you need to have 56 units that are either social or affordable housing. That's huge. In most American cities, what we call inclusionary zoning is only at 10, 12, maybe 15% of all units being built. So this means that if you are a developer and you are building next to a new green, green amenity, the requirements to actually support the rights to housing of working class residents is not something that that is very stringent upon you. And that's not going to be something enough to prevent displacement and assure affordability. We're discussing the impact of green gentrification. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Morgan Stanley. Inclusion is fuel for innovation. On Access and Opportunity, an award-winning show from Morgan Stanley, they take you inside the companies at the intersection of building equity for their communities and creating business solutions in overlooked areas of the market, from closing the women's sports pay gap to leveling the playing field in the music industry. Follow Access and Opportunity wherever you listen. This message comes from Wondery with the new podcast, Black History for Real, weaving Black History's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to our conversation on green gentrification. I'm here with Winifred Curran, an urban geographer and professor of geography and sustainable urban development at DePaul University. Also with us, Asima Yansfeld, the Interim Chief Program and Engagement Officer for Friends of the High Line and Managing Director of the High Line Network, and Isabel Angolovsky. She's the Director of the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability. One of the markers of green gentrification is that it raises the cost of living near renovated green zones, which puts a squeeze on low-income renters and can lead to displacement. Now, this can lead to inequalities along racial and economic lines in terms of who can access the green space. Asima, what is the Highline Network doing to promote equity across the projects you mentioned it works with around the country? Yeah, so there's a there's a few things we're doing. I think, you know, a conversation that a lot of our members had was just that this conversation about economic impact has had such a primary place in what we think about for development of new green space. And how do we actually get people to consider the factors that are of most important to our values just as importantly and to finance that at a public level? So essentially, how do we measure equity and our impact on equity? And so we've had a lot of conversations over the past few years about measuring social impact, thinking about environmental impact and having that be the uh, contributor or the factor for public investment in these places. And um, over the years, we developed a partnership with Harvard um, Graduate School of Design and with Urban Institute to put out um, and launch last year something we call the Community First Toolkit. Um, And in that, we actually essentially lay out a series of tools and a process that we think is necessary for park organizations at any stage of development to really embed into their work to ensure that they're factoring issues of equity every step along the way. And it's called Community First Toolkit because, surprise, surprise, it's mostly about who holds the power in making those decisions and and benefits from the value that's created. Um, So, you know, we've touched on a lot of these issues in this conversation, but it's ensuring that we're always starting from a point of history. What has come before us? What is the culture? What is the place? Who's living there right now? How do we respect and honor that and ensure that they're actually being elevated in the work that they do? We're looking at, you know, how an organization's internal practices mimic that. 
what are the partnerships? Because as nonprofit park institutions, there's only so much that a project can take on. And it's really about the larger public investment that can help um, uh, mitigate issues of affordable housing, workforce development, um, and other factors that play into gentrification in areas. So we're really working hard to kind of change the dialogue around what it takes to prioritize public investment in in public spaces and that it's not always about the economic investment or the economic value that's going to be created, but it's about other factors like physical and mental health and environmental health of an area that uh, should be more um, primary to how we're considering the importance of public spaces in our areas. Michael on Twitter asks us, can there be a policy like a price control implemented to protect the residents of an area that's getting a refurbished green space? I wonder, Asima, have you seen policies and programs along those lines? Yeah, so 11th Street Bridge Park was mentioned before. We're seeing more and more communities think about community land trusts as ways to preserve affordable housing in perpetuity, or at least for 99 years. Um, so, And it was also mentioned that so much of the housing that occurs in, around these areas is rental, and they're the ones that are most vulnerable to being displaced. So looking at what are the ways that we can empower people to actually take on home ownership um, 11th Street Bridge Park, again, they've been working with the Home Buyers Club, where they offer down payment assistance and cover closing costs to help remove barriers for first-time homeowners in, in the areas that are um, primarily black and brown neighborhoods of Anacostia on one side of the, the new park that's going to be coming up. Um, we think a lot about workforce development, just how can we actually prioritize local hiring and um, prioritize in advance of park construction workforce um, training skills so that they are primed to take on either the construction jobs or the gardening jobs or the visitor service jobs that come with um, a new public space. Isabel, how does the 11th Street Bridge project represent a change in thinking and how developers are looking at these kinds of green developments? Well, it represents, I would say in some ways, uh, an announcement effect. That is that I can absolutely see the prioritization of equity, the intentionality of equity put in place by um, people like Von Perry and, and, and his group. The problem is that developers coming early using an announcement effect start buying property and retenant it and very quickly contribute to increased prices. And so in that sense, I would say it's not enough. And that's the risk is that gentrification progress is way quicker and real estate development moves in way quicker because, of course, it's all private money driven in comparison with rights to affordable and secure housing. So for every 50 or 100 units of affordable housing that are being preserved, either for rental or for purchase, you probably see two or three times uh, of properties that are being just swapped and converted into uh, gentrified housing. And so that's the problem that we are facing. How can the rate of equity-driven greening be actually as fast as the one um, that is actually displacing residents? And that's a problem all around the country. And D.C. is not immune from it because D.C. was a few years ago and is still the fastest gentrifying city in America. And Anacostia is one of the latest uh, areas where land is still relatively cheap, where you have what developers see as kind of a grabbing opportunity. We call this in our research green grabbing. That is the ability of developers and investors to come in into land that has been historically undervalued and underpriced and make a profit 
that comes from changing the, um, the property, from upgrading it, and from using the green infrastructure around that property to market it and to market it at higher prices that will then be accrued by elite residents. That's the problem that we are facing. And another one is the fact that greening and housing has historically not worked hand in hand. And so you've had green infrastructure being developed by environmental departments, by climate emergency groups in municipalities, but in a way that has been very independent, autonomous from community development or housing departments. And so there has been an inability to bring both together and really prioritize equity in housing and equity in greening and vice versa. Asima, uh, this project, the 11th Street Bridge project, is part of your Highline network. I wonder if you can speak to that at all. Have you worked specifically with them on on some of the concerns that Isabel's raising? Yeah, I think that they're, you know, the reason that they've spent five years working on, they're one of the first projects to actually start with an equitable development plan with, you know, four key pillars of what they wanted to make sure that they were impacting before they even put a shovel in the ground. So they're looking at housing, they're looking at small business enterprises, arts and culture, um, and and looking at what the, and workforce development to see how they can actually move the needle on that. I think an important point about 11th Street Bridge Park also is that they've actually been able to drive $85 million in investment towards equity work, which is on par with their construction costs. So there's also this, this belief that if you work to embed equity or if you spend the time to be thoughtful and what it looks like to um, position your neighborhood in the best place before the green comes in, that you there isn't the money for it, but there is actually lots of uh, support now for people to think more holistically about the work that they're doing. It continues to be, there is no silver bullet, right? There's only ways for us to continue to take risks and experiment and to to try different mechanisms to mitigate what is we see happening in our neighborhoods. And when we see success, when we see the success of 11th Street Bridge Park, when they start construction next year and they open in a couple of years, that will help lay a framework for people to expand these models of preservation for, for housing, for thinking about more holistic workforce development models moving forward that hopefully we can get larger policy decisions to be made. So I think for us, the biggest thing is um, for network members to really be experimenting about what are the different ways that these things can come into place. Mm. And and I still want to mention that there is a huge difference in thinking about cities that are fast growing and have larger forces where people are, where this gentrification can cause displacement. And there are still cities where they welcome economic investment and development and need that kind of attention from the private sector to revitalize neighborhoods in different ways. And I'll just mention one um, destination, Crenshaw, which is in the Crenshaw neighborhood in LA. Mm-hmm. And they're very, they talk very much about how reclaiming a black LA and a black neighborhood for black LA by black LA. They hire intentionally all black services, contractors, and they're working very hard to ensure that it's the the black businesses and the residents who live there that will benefit from the development. Yeah, so different strategies for different cities. You know, Alexis, a listener, Alexis emailed and asked, why do developers keep getting permits to build this gentrified and unaffordable housing, causing an increase in gentrified green spaces? You know, Winifred, I wonder if your research can speak to that question at all. Oh, absolutely. That the city plays a huge role in this. A lot of this stuff could not happen 
without the city's permission. And in many cases, the city is kind of giving stuff away without getting a whole lot back in return. So they're, for example, allowing for rezonings that enable developers to, to build at very high densities without requiring a huge amount of affordable housing to go with that density. Um, so there, there are definitely ways in which cities could intervene in these projects and require greater levels of affordability or just not allow a certain development to take place if it's in an environmentally sensitive area. Um, but they tend to see these projects as kind of flagship projects that are going to increase the reputation of the city. So by and large, city governments have been behind this, but there are absolutely things that they could do to, to at least slow the process um, and guarantee a lot more affordability and more attention to social justice than they have so far been in the habit of doing. One of the ideas we're hearing about is tree equity. Organizations around the country are trying to promote a more equitable distribution of environmental resources. And we got this message from Alexis Gomez, who works as the senior manager of community engagement at American Forests. Tree equity means getting trees into those communities and to those people that can benefit from them the most. Trees are critical, life-saving infrastructure in the fight to slow climate change. And American Forests is building a movement around tree equity block by block. We support communities with the tools and resources to tackle the legacy of discrimination that remains evident in our built environments. We aim to build long-term local capacity with tools like Tree Equity Score, which helps cities prioritize where to plant and protect trees, and advocating for policies and funding to advance urban forestry. You know, Asima, we've been talking about sort of the tension between greening and affordability, but sometimes there are tensions within, uh, you know, within individual goals. So how do you think about the challenge of the, you know, a concept like tree equity, spreading uh, spreading green spaces and and parks and things around a city in in smaller amounts, perhaps, versus a big project like the High Line, which takes up a lot of space and is and is quite expensive to maintain. Um, is there a tension there between sort of these big projects and more perhaps equitable distribution? Yeah, well, you know, I don't think that one precludes the other. I think it's important for us to have these signature spaces in our cities as well as have our neighborhood and pocket um, parks. And, I, you know, to, the, the High Line, first of all, is, is, it's actually not that big. It's a one and, you know, it's a mile and a half compared to a lot of our other public spaces in, in other cities. And it does not, it's completely privately run right now. So it's not actually taking any money away from the city investment that's going into pocket parks or in other areas of New York City. And so, you know, it's really important. I think we see it depends on a city by city level, but in New York City, some of our larger parks tend to be operated and maintained by private conservancies. And so the city is actually able to distribute more equitably the investment of their parks resources to other areas. And, you know, I mentioned the Houston Parks Board example before. We do see these other examples where the signature parks are feeling an obligation to support neighborhood parks in different ways as well. We've heard lots of ideas and solutions today from our uh, wonderful panel of guests. Thank you to Winifred Curran, professor of geography and sustainable urban development at DePaul University and author of Just Green Enough, Urban Development and Environmental Gentrification. Asim Jansfeld also joined us, managing director of the Highline Network, and Isabel Angolevsky. She's the director of the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability. Thanks to all of you. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear... It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.